In a world ruled by emotion, where reason is abandoned, God is forsaken, and history forgotten, two brave men will attempt to do the unthinkable. Use their brains. Armed with ancient wisdom, they will bring light into our modern world. This is the Sons of Antiquity Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Sons of Antiquity Podcast. I'm your host, Dan, and I'm joined in the studio by my co-host, Evan. How's it going? On today's episode, we will be reviewing a classic piece of British literature, The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. Here's what we're going to cover on today's episode. First, an overview of the novel and its origin. We'll give you a plot summary and then talk about the central themes of the novel. Then we'll jump into a short biography of Oscar Wilde's life and talk about some of the controversies surrounding the novel and Wilde himself. Then we'll enter into a little discussion on Victorian-era England and the Gothic style. Then we'll talk about some other famous works from this period that are very interesting and a little pertinent to the discussion. Uh, We'll go over various interpretations next, including our own takes on the novel and Wilde himself. And then we will ask, has Dorian Gray become even more relevant in the 21st century? All right, so we can begin with an overview of the novel and its origin. The Picture of Dorian Gray was written by English author and playwright Oscar Wilde and was originally published as a novella in the July 1890 issue of Lippincott's Monthly Magazine, an American publication. The novella was later revised and made into a full-length novel, which was published in April of the following year. It all started when J.M. Stoddard, an editor for Lippincott's Monthly, took a trip to England to see if he could find some new material for the magazine. While dining at the Langham Hotel in London on August 30th, 1889, the editor was joined by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, author of the Sherlock Holmes series, I'm sure you've heard of him, T.P. Gill, a member of Parliament, and of course Oscar Wilde. Stoddard commissioned both Wilde and Doyle that night and received Doyle's submission, The Sign of the Four, the second installment in the Sherlock Holmes series soon thereafter. Wilde submitted his early draft of Dorian Gray seven months later, Stoddard and Lippincott liked the manuscript but took issue with some of the more, shall we say, indecent elements, such as the allusions to homosexuality and various instances of depravity and hedonism. Stoddard was even quoted as saying, In its present condition, there are a number of things an innocent woman would make an exception to. To remedy this, 500 words were removed from the work before it was published, all without Wilde's permission. But for the publication of the full novel one year later, Wilde retained those edits, made some of his own, added some characters, and expanded the story while trying to streamline the message and downplay some of the more controversial elements. In response to criticisms of the novella, Wilde prefaced the full 1891 edition of the work with a very short treatise on the subject of art itself, its meaning, its purpose, and its usefulness, which ends with these words. We can forgive a man for making a useful thing as long as he does not admire it. The only excuse for making a useless thing is that one admires it intensely. All art is quite useless. This preface can be interpreted in as many different ways as the novel itself, but we'll discuss these possible interpretations later on in the episode. Let's move on to the plot summary. Dorian Gray is a handsome young man in England. His artist friend, Basil, paints a portrait of Dorian because he's so pretty. See your overview and how this book is kind of gay. While an opinionated and pithy Lord Henry Wotton watches, 
Henry is a hedonist, meaning he thinks pleasure and beauty are the only things worth living for. Dorian realizes that his beauty will fade, so he rashly wishes that the portrait would age instead of him. Magically, his wish is granted. He pursues a minor actress named Sybil Vane because of how she makes him feel when she's on stage. They court and fall in love, supposedly. However, her infatuation with Dorian causes her acting to go downhill. Which is just like Kathy from season four of Friends, whose perceived acting ability changed as her real-life chemistry with the characters changed. It's a common storytelling trope there, and it it just uh, jumped out in my mind when I was rereading that passage. I said, you know what? They kind of copied that a hundred years later in Friends. Weird. Interesting. History repeats itself. So after this, Dorian is embarrassed uh, by her poor acting, and he rejects her. She kills herself because she's so heartbroken that the uh, incredibly handsome Dorian left her. The portrait then changes, with the mouth becoming a little crueler. Dorian locks the portrait in a room because of this. He realizes that his wish did come true, and now any time he sins, the portrait uh, becomes slightly uglier. And so he doesn't want to face that, so he locks it away. Influenced by Lord Henry, he indulges in every vice imaginable for the next 18 years. Basil asks Dorian if the rumors of his debauchery are true. Dorian shows him the portrait, and it is so repulsive that Basil begs Dorian to repent. Dorian blames him, and, well, he kills him. He blackmails his friend Alan, who is studying science, tells him to dispose of Basil's body. Alan does so, but ends up killing himself. In an opium den, Dorian is approached by the actress's brother, James Vane, who's seeking revenge and has been searching for Dorian all this time. Since Dorian still looks young, he manages to talk his way out of it, but the brother finds out his secret that Dorian doesn't actually age, and he begins to stalk him. The brother is accidentally shot by a hunting party that Dorian is part of, though. After this, Dorian makes an attempt to reform himself, but realizes that he is only doing so out of vanity. In a desperate attempt to absolve himself, Dorian stabs the portrait, but it only kills him. When police arrive on the scene to investigate, all they find is an old man stabbed to death with a portrait of a young man next to him. Very fitting. So here are some of the central themes of the novel. First, the purpose of art and aestheticism. Wilde claimed that the purpose of art is to have no purpose. It shouldn't be used to educate people on social values or morals. Art should only exist to be beautiful. The ironic part of this is that by trying to tell us that art shouldn't have a moral purpose, he is giving us a moral lesson, and this novel is a big morality tale. There's really no escaping meaning. That's very true. I would say, secondly, hedonism is a central theme. This philosophy espouses the supremacy of youth and beauty. While it does not necessarily mean that a person will give in to every pleasure, like it's often portrayed as a hedonist is just someone who blindly follows every passion, it does mean that pleasure is the goal of this philosophy's adherent. Virtue is a societal construct, or it's just plain unimportant. Dorian, influenced by Lord Henry, values beautiful things, but doesn't account for his soul becoming more tarnished as a result. However, as we see, beauty is almost a superficial commodity. It doesn't mean that much. It's just something that can make you advance in life. Dorian is never ostracized by the English elite because he's so handsome. Yeah, he gets to rub shoulders with them and go to fancy dinners, and uh, he's just the life of the party. Same with Lord Henry. That's the most deplorable character. He really is. And not only that, because he's 
a hedonist, but because he's a hypocrite too. You know, he talks all this big game, but you realize later on in the novel that he really doesn't mean it. So at least you could give Dorian some credit by saying, hey, this is a good idea. I'm going to go do it now. And even though it's a bad thing he's doing or many bad things, at least he had the guts to go out and do it. Lord Henry would just talk all this uh, big game and he had the means to go and do all these things, but he never did. I think they even admit that he's like happily married. I think by, I think it's divorced near the end, oh, if maybe. I remember correctly. But for a while there, he's he's talking about this stuff, and he's just living a normal life. So and everything, a little bit of everything he says is just like a puzzle. It's just to make people think he's smart. But if you really analyze his pithy statements, they oftentimes don't make any sense. Yeah, there are some of those brain teasers. Like, did that make? Sense? Oh, I'm gonna think that I'm gonna act like that made sense because it makes me fit in. But really, yeah. it's just dumb. Yeah, he's kind of like a poser, wouldn't you yeah. say? Big yeah. poser. Now, do you think that Lord Henry kind of got a sick kick out of seeing Dorian do all this stuff? Like he was almost like a voyeur in a way, watching him do all these bad things. Well, he definitely likes to scandalize people to do what he wouldn't do. I would agree. Yeah. Now, a third theme, actually fourth if you count the third theme just being Lord Henry being the worst, uh, <laughs> is influence. Be careful who you let influence you. You know what they say. You're the product of your five closest friends. Don't let a Lord Henry into your life. Now let's go over a short biography of Oscar Wilde's life. Oscar Fingal O'Flaherty Wills Wilde was born on October 16, 1854, in Dublin, Ireland. His mother was a writer, poet, and former Irish revolutionary who allegedly doted on him as a boy and often dressed him in girls' clothes while his father was a successful ear and eye surgeon who had published a textbook on oral surgery, but was a serial philanderer. The stage was already set for Oscar Wilde to be led a little bit astray and maybe turn out a little different than some others. But, yeah, you know, we can see some similarities between him and Dorian in a way. Yeah, he's fulfilling. He's definitely not going against stereotypes about homosexuals. That's for sure. <laughs> All the boxes are checked. Wilde studied at uh, Magdalen College, Oxford, where his poem Ravenna won him the uh, Newdigate Prize in 1878, and at Trinity College in Dublin, where he won the Berkeley Gold Medal for Greek. It was at Oxford where Wilde was introduced to the aesthetic movement and became heavily influenced by artistic individualism and Renaissance-era themes. After his years at university, Wilde moved to London to pursue a literary career. It's like you go to college and then <laughs> you get all this... All these wild ideas. All these wild ideas. Imagine that. Imagine going to college and being kind of corrupted in a way. Yeah. There's definitely no modern counterpart to that no. at all. No. Anomaly. Oscar Wilde published a collection of poems in the early 1880s to mixed and mostly negative reviews, but managed to secure a lecture tour of America. Over the next several years, he married Constance Lloyd, had two sons, became editor of Women's World magazine, ironic, and rubbed shoulders with England's rich and famous, gaining a reputation as a highly entertaining dinner guest and an exceptional storyteller. After publishing Dorian Gray, Wilde came under fire for the homoerotic undertones of the novel and faced harsh public criticism, much of which was brought on by other such scandals happening in England at the time. As it would appear, public suspicions turned out to be correct. Over the next decade, Wilde became embroiled in a series of public relations disasters and criminal trials, culminating in his two-year imprisonment for the crime of being a homosexual. After serving his time, 
Wilde was released, poor, destitute, his reputation ruined. He traveled Europe for a short time before his waning health got the better of him. He died in 1900 at age 46. Now, was he married this whole time? I am not sure. I think what I read was that uh, while he was going through the trial or maybe after he was through the trial but in prison, his wife took the kids and and left, went somewhere else. So for all intents and purposes, he was unmarried at this time. Like, I don't think she came back to welcome him into her arms. Now, I will say, I I think from a while back doing research into Oscar Wilde that I think his mother was like a Catholic and his dad was a Protestant. Hmm. And so I think it's it's possible that she secretly baptized him Catholic as a kid. Really? But it's uncertain. And actually on his deathbed, he did get a conditional baptism in the Catholic Church. Interesting. I didn't know that. So he might be in purgatory with his flamboyant self. I don't know. Uh, who knows? <laughs> we may never know. Well, aside from Dorian Gray, his one and only novel, Wilde penned nine plays in total, four of which stand above the rest. Lady Windermere's Fan in 1893, A Woman of No Importance in 1893, An Ideal Husband in 1899, and his most successful and well-known, The Importance of Being Earnest in 1895. Now, I will say I've read a few of his short stories. I found them to be very good. Yes, he is an exceptional writer. Yeah. There's one on a ghost uh, that was funny. Another on a a fortune teller who gets the better of him. Yeah. Did he mostly focus on like mysticism and and stay within like the gothic kind of realm with his stories? Because I haven't really dabbled much in I've only read like two or three of them. Mm -hmm. One was just like about a ghost that inhabited a house, but the the kids keep playing pranks on it and stuff. Oh, okay. (laughs) The other ones are all this fortune teller who turns white in the face when he's about to give this guy's fortune, says that he's going to like kill someone. And I'm not going to give away the ending. Oh, it's it's really good. Okay. I'll have to, I'll have to dive into that one. Let's talk about some controversies surrounding the novel and Wilde himself. As we mentioned earlier, the novel was plagued by scandal from the start. This was due to the homosexual innuendos, references to naughty literature and pornography, like the mysterious yellow book mentioned in the novel, given to him by Lord Henry, of course, Uh, the hedonism of Dorian, and the violence he brings on his friends and acquaintances. English society at the time was highly stratified, and social norms were much more conservative than they are today, and those norms were more strictly enforced through shame, ridicule, and even the law itself. Because of this, homosexuality was not celebrated like it is today on the BBC and in the British government, but it was actually illegal. Technically, it was called sodomy, but... Yes. Being gay wasn't a very Christian thing to do, even by Protestant standards. The main evidence for gayness in uh, Dorian Gray can be found in the interactions between Dorian and the artist Basil. Basil admits to Dorian, I worshipped you. I grew jealous of everyone to whom you spoke. I wanted to have you all to myself. I was only happy when I was with you. Now, to be fair, I say that to Evan every time he considers replacing me with a new co-host for the show. (laughs) Many critics also pan the novel for its apparent lack of a moral and criticize the dependence on debauchery to sell a story. The second argument definitely has some merit. Almost 15 pages of the novel are dedicated to describing Dorian's fascination with all of the pleasurable experiences life has to offer. This takes place during the 18 years where he just kind of runs off and and does his own thing. He talks about foreign perfumes, decorations, furniture, literature, food and drink, etc. It's honestly just a laundry list of fancy consumerist nonsense that adds nothing real to the story. 
If its purpose was to show the reader how vapid the guy is, it did that, but it went a little overboard, uh, maybe way overboard. Dorian also visits seedy opium dens and leads a woman to suicide, then lies to her caring brother about it, ruins good people's reputations, treats Basil like garbage, and so much more, uh, reinforcing his sinfulness time and time again to the point where it's almost like beating a dead horse. The second accusation, though, that the novel has no morals is harder to prove. Since Dorian's life and relationships all come to a tragic end by the novel's finale, can it really be said that there is no moral? Dorian wasted his unending youth on sin and got his just desserts in the end. To me, that screams a variation of crime doesn't pay. Wilde himself had this to say, There is a terrible moral in Dorian Gray, a moral which the prurient will not be able to find in it, but which will be revealed to all those whose minds are healthy. So at least the author himself seemed to believe there was something there. You just have to dig a little deeper. That's very contradictory because he was saying that art should have no moral purpose. And now he's saying, oh, there's actually a moral to it. Yeah, he was definitely a contradictory guy. I'd say so. Why, why is Oscar Wilde controversial? Not only was Wilde a controversial figure because of his written work, but his real-life homosexual relationships also called, caused a stir. Biographers have noted that Wilde may have engaged in a romantic relationship with Robert Ross, one of his peers at Oxford who took on the role as his literary executor during Wilde's trial and imprisonment. In 1891, Wilde began a secret affair with Lord Alfred Douglas, son of the Marquis of Queensbury. In 1895, as Wilde's career as a playwright was reaching its height with the production of The Importance of Being Earnest, the Marquis accused Wilde of being a homosexual. Wilde sued the Marquis for libel, which brought the entire situation and all the gory details into the public sphere. Wilde lost in court and was later arrested and tried for gross indecency and sodomy, so that really backfired. Yes, he, he thought he could win and then neglected to think that, oh man, I might lose and all this stuff may become public. He was sentenced to two years of hard labor, which he served, but his experience destroyed his health. Now, would you say is Wilde more influential now because of the drama surrounding him in the last years of his life? Would he be more obscure if he'd lived a longer, normal life? What could he have accomplished if his life hadn't been cut short? I think to answer the first question, that's usually how it goes. When there's some sort of tragedy surrounding an artist, especially an artist, um, not so much uh, an engineer or even, you know, like just a well-known, well-loved figure. It's usually an artist or maybe even a politician. People just tend to talk more about them and frame their accomplishments in a different light. Perfect example, Kurt Cobain. Generally a douchebag, but... I hate that band. Yeah, I mean, I, I enjoy Nirvana's music. I did do not enjoy Nirvana, and I I don't agree with really anything that Kurt Cobain believed or stood for. Um, there was actually, I'll tell you, do a little quick side note. There was an interesting video I watched by I Hypocrite where he talked about uh, if Kurt Cobain was still alive today and he had a Twitter. Just imagine the things he would do because he was controversial back you know, in the early 90s. He was where he was cross-dressing. He was saying a lot of stuff that was very anti-conservative, you know, and he was very um, forward-thinking when it came to gay rights and things like that, you know, for the time. So if he was still alive today... He'd be a very controversial figure. So, yeah, I think the death of a, of a, especially the tragic death of an artist, makes people remember them better and makes people like their work better. Now, 
the importance of being earnest was super popular at the time and probably and is still popular, you know, if you'll you'll read about it in literature class or drama class or whatever. So that's one of like the main big plays of that era. So I think he still would have had some fame. Yeah, that's probably true. Now, as for what would he have accomplished? I mean, I think uh he was he was riding he was he was a rising star really uh, at the time of this whole trial. So maybe he hadn't reached his peak yet. Maybe there was another play he had in his head that he could have penned and would have been really just even better than the last. So who's to say, you know, what he would have accomplished? I like to think that he would have written some more influential works, and it would have been cool to see him write another novel. Sadly, he didn't get the chance. All right, so let's discuss Victor- Victorian era England in the Gothic style. Queen Victoria reigned from 1837 to 1901. The Victorian era boiled down to a British society in which class was very important, more suffrage was granted, the economy grew, and imperialism was, shall we say, very successful. The middle class established itself as a force to be reckoned with due to the Industrial Revolution. Today, Victorian is almost a slur. It means a society that is full of contradictions and double standards. In this bygone era, women were portrayed as sexless housewives and men were sex-crazed breadwinners. One's class and sex determined one's life course more than any other factors. Men and women inhabited separate spheres. This is kind of where the stay-at-home mom concept originated, if we want to be technical about it. Like the modern stay-at-home mom in like a suburban setting. Yes, of like not, not staying at home and working. It's just like staying at home and keeping the house and children. Yeah, and that's it. Yeah, that's it. Whereas before, the like, woman would have worked and like done in a farming stuff. community. They could have done indoor work, like I don't know, like knitting or, or dealing, fabricating with, clothes and things like that. Yeah, I mean, even just other indoor work, like making butter or something, you know. But anyways, let's go to gothic fiction. It's a genre that covers horror, death, and romance. It is closely related to romanticism, which, if I am remembering correctly, was also big at this time. Yes. Yes, uh, it definitely was. Now, Evan, do you enjoy the gothic style, and do you think it translates as well to film, or maybe even better? Well, you're more of an expert than me, but, I mean, I think the gothic books that you're going to talk about are pretty good, the ones I've read. I think so. I, I think they all, even if the stories are maybe not your cup of tea, I think just the style and the mood is so interesting. Everybody loves something that's kind of dark and gritty and mysterious and spooky. I mean, Halloween's one of the biggest holidays in America, at least, you know, every year. People just love spooky season, you know, and I can't blame them. It's just cool because it's it's a little bit of a break from the norm. Spooktober. Yes. RIP to Spooktober. I can't wait for next year's. Now, as far as does it translate better to film, I think it translates equally well. I think film can capture the gothic style and the horror style very well. Obviously, there's so many horror movies out there. And when you think of movie genres, that's a gigantic one. It may not win an Oscar. You know, you're never going to see Jason Voorhees up there accepting uh, an award. But it's so popular and there's so many movies in the horror genre that, yeah, I think the gothic style translates extremely well to film. And most horror movies are bad. Changed my mind. Ooh. Nice hot take. We may have to have a hot takes episode on that. Low quality, I will say. I like the good ones. Sure. But most of the time I end up just laughing at horror movies because they're so bad. I I would agree. There are way more bad horror movies than there are like bad other types of movies. Other than maybe sci-fi. No, except for action movies, which are equally bad. Oh, you may have a (laughs) point there. Yeah. 
Yeah. All right. Pencil that in for a hot takes episode because we we have a lot to cover on that one. That's <laughs> oof, that's a Pandora's box. Uh, but as you mentioned earlier, Evan, there are some great uh, works from this period, and uh, I'd like to mention just a few of them uh, that are near and dear to me, uh, such as Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, uh, the works of Edgar Allan Poe, The Curious Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson, and The Time Machine by H.G. Wells, all incredible classics from this era, and they all deal with common themes like man versus technology, man as God, men's interactions in a changing society, and the horror and fear within our world and within ourselves. So do you think this genre is kind of indicative of the modern world in itself? Like the horrors of not having meaning? Yes, I think so. I think this period, you know, at the turn of the last century, where we saw a huge increase in industrialization and really a change from the agrarian lifestyle that defined all of humanity up to that point, moving into an industrial age, it caused a lot of confusion and fear, and and it was like the unknown. No one had ever seen advancement this rapid before. And so our entire culture in the West was changing rapidly. And we're seeing a mirror image of that 100 years later as we're transitioning into a digital age. So it's really like a quantum leap separated by a century, but it's no wonder that the Twilight Zone and Black Mirror type shows are so popular. It's because the speed of the changing technology is, you know, exponential. With and with exponential changes, you're going to just not be able to keep up. Humans can't keep up with that, with what they've created. They've almost made a machine that is moving faster than they can comprehend. I'd say the Victorian era was probably time period of the most change. And possibly in like the last 500 years. I would say so. And what they got the Industrial Revolution. Yes. And they didn't have the benefit of being able to look back at the Victorian era. We already know what to expect. Like, even if the advancement is, is running rampant, you know, out of our control, almost too much for us to keep up, we at least know that this is going to happen. They didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know the, how fast it was going to suddenly accelerate. But we do. And so at least we have that hindsight in the 21st century, you know, thankfully. Will it be enough to offset all the insanity, the wokeness, the just the, the absolute craziness? I don't know. But I hope we can, we can make it through. And maybe by looking back at this era, we can gain some hindsight. But I guess what I really wanted to tie together was that so many great works came out of such a scary time. This was a scary time for people. So people kind of channeled that fear into great works of literature. So if you are interested in, you know, Dorian Gray piques your interest, check out some of those. And it's funny because this was a period of peace in Europe. It was. From 1815 to 1914, there was no major war in Europe. Could, could you say the same about us also? There's really no major war. Yeah, the yeah. war on terror, but it's being fought by so few people. And far away. Far away. Maybe. I don't know. It's just, it's interesting that in a time of very limited war. There, they had imperial wars and such, but there was no, there was no European continent war, really. And there's so much prosperity and no war, and people are so scared. You know, I don't know. It's not what you'd expect. Yeah. Let's talk about our interpretations. Uh, first off, the preface, as we promised, we would discuss. Wilde sincerely believed that art was useless, 
and only existed for its own sake, separate from the author or his intentions, and impo- which would be an impossible task. Another interpretation is that Wilde really did believe the art was useful or could convey a true meaning or message, but he was being sneaky about it, possibly. Thirdly, you could say Wilde was trolling the audience and critics by being intentionally cryptic, vague, and contradictory. Now, what do you think he meant? I like to think that he was just trolling them because he didn't come out with this preface right off the bat. It was only a response to critics a year later or so. And so I think there was a certain amount of of trickery there of him just trying to say, oh, I'm, I'm on to you. I read your articles and I don't care. I'm going to give you something that's going to make you scratch your head. I think he liked to try and be an enigma, even if in a lot of ways he was kind of transparent. People could kind of see right through what what was going on with his uh, with what he was doing behind closed doors, if you know what I'm saying. Speaking of Twitter, he would just be he would be a real star on Twitter. Oscar Wilde would really be a great asset to Twitter. He would just say all these cryptic things. It wouldn't mean anything. Get him and Poe a Twitter account. Bro. He would just randomly like re- retweet Mike Pence sometime just to throw people off. Probably. Honestly, <laughs> you got to hand it to the guy. Yeah, if if um, if he had had the social media influence that some people do these days, oh yeah, it, it'd be game over. But what do you think? Do you think he was uh, he was being cryptic, or do you really think that he was was being honest? Yeah, art is useless. I think that yeah, I think he believed it actually. You can see in his life that he repeatedly said art has no purpose. But I actually I halfway agree with him. And that art, I feel like if you just write um, a piece of work just to have a morality play on it, it's not even really art anymore. It's more like a tool for education. I can see that. And the purpose of art and beauty is really just its own sake. You can take that too far. But people are attracted to beauty not because of some higher, higher, um, I don't know, meaning. I guess it is some higher meaning, but... Beauty really has no purpose other than being beautiful. You see a, yeah. let's say you say a beautiful woman, beautiful face. What does that really do? You know, you see strong muscles. Okay, they can wield tools, weapons. They can defend you. But a beautiful face, it's just beautiful, isn't it? I wouldn't use that example because it's it's a less pure example that you could easily manipulate to say, oh, it's just because of our desires that we feel that way. But let's just say a beautiful building, Okay. you know. Like uh, yeah, people are just attracted to what was the Notre Dame in Paris, and there's no there's no reason really objectively that we would be attracted to beautiful things because if they have no utility, to most people who visit who are not Catholic, it has no utility. None. But they still are want to go on tours of it back when it wasn't burned down. Same thing with the uh, with the Sistine Chapel. It's just a bunch of paint on a ceiling, mm-hmm. or is it? You know, it is some. It is a universe in and of itself, in a way. It doesn't actually do anything for you. Can't feed you. Can't clothe you. Can't protect you from the wilderness. And yet, people flock to it. Why? You may be right, and and Oscar Wilde may be right. It's just beautiful for its own sake. It's art for art's sake. You know, you're such a materialist. Um, you probably think that paintings are just, you know, um, different assemblies of paint, which is composed of different atoms configured in certain ways. True. You could you could literally put me through a wood chipper and make me into a piece of art. Watch episode 15, Ship of Theseus. You won't regret it. 
That that really does tie into it. You got me there. <laughs> got him. <laughs> All right, my turn. Here are some possible interpretations of the novel. One, hedonism is good. Two, hedonism only leads to suffering. Three, moderation, such as that displayed by Lord Henry to some degree, who only admired the hedonistic lifestyle but rarely engaged in it, may be a nice compromise. Or lastly, Wilde was just throwing ideas at the wall to see which one would stick. Now, I have a friend from high school. Friend might be an overstatement. Yes, a former acquaintance from high school who we shall call Bob. High school Bob was a big fan of Oscar Wilde, and he actually introduced me to the author and some of his works, which I read. And I'll just say this. I'll give you a a little comparison here. Wilde was to Bob as Lord Henry was to Dorian. High school Bob was just infatuated with Oscar Wilde, thought he was the cat's pajamas or whatever the phrase is, thought he was the bee's knees. He thought he was just great. And he interpreted the novel to be basically a blank check, a permission slip to act like a fool, to act out your wildest fantasies and desires. And he really was, in a way, obsessed with the hedonistic lifestyle. And uh, as Evan can attest, he only knew him briefly, uh, high school Bob. Uh, But the man certainly acted out on uh, his urges shall we say. Would you say that's a fair assessment? From what I know, yes. Now, as far as I know, High School Bob still has this idea that what the novel was trying to say was that hedonism is good. You should live like Dorian and live without consequence because not only is art something that exists for its own sake, but life just exists for its own sake. I think that's kind of an interpretation that he but ha- took. How do you come to that conclusion after reading Dorian Gray? Unless you just didn't read the last chapter. I don't see how you could come to that conclusion, which has just bugged me for really like the last 10 years. I just cannot wrap my head around how he thought that that's what the novel meant. I mean, if you look at Oscar Wilde's life, it's almost like an affirmation of his conclusion. I don't, I don't know. It's kind of a weird book for Oscar Wilde to have written, considering his lifestyle. Yes, I agree, which kind of lends more credit to the fact that this guy was really just a a big old walking contradiction, a man after my own heart, really, a a true hypocrite. Not that I would advocate for uh, emulating Oscar Wilde's life like High School Bob did, but it's just interesting that this guy was not afraid to be a little hypocritical. Anyway, the moral of this story is because... Here at the Sons of Antiquity podcast, we'll go ahead and put a moral in a story. We're not just making this for for podcast's sake, right? It's funny how people always put a moral on stories, even if it's not intended. Yeah, I guess so. People look for meaning in things, in everything. You're right. So here's my meaning. High School Bob, if you're out there, you're wrong about Dorian Gray. I'm sorry. Go read it again. Okay, let's move on. I think um, we hit on some some nerve there. (laughs) What were our first impressions of the novel? I'll say, I'll be brief. I loved the novel when I first read it. He has a great writing style. I would agree. I also enjoyed it. It's very dark and spooky, as I said earlier. It's a vibe, as the kids say. I especially liked reading it because I got something totally different out of it than Bob did. <laughs> it always comes back to Bob with you. Well, in this, I, I had to almost like dedicate this episode to Bob because like this was 
his this this was his favorite book and uh, Wild was his favorite author. So I really had to do that. Okay, here's my my reading on the moral tale here. This is just me. People actually do look different if they act virtuously or viciously by the time they're 50 at most, sometimes earlier. You can notice this in old people, and you can say holy people or anyone who has led an honest and optimistic life, they have less wrinkles and more smiles. They just look prettier, assuming they haven't had work done. Uh, And it is easy to see why some nuns could be said to glow. That's often said of these religious sisters that they just they glow even though you can just see their face it's like shining at you almost like vibrant hmm. they may that's maybe because they never married i don't know yeah <laughs> maybe yeah there are more obvious examples a drug addict or alcoholic will look uglier when they're older whether they recovered or not at any point some vices just leave a mark i think it's also hugely important to choose your friends wisely young people and many old people too carelessly choose their friends. Usually it's just whoever happens to be around them. While that's convenient, it can be damaging to one's character, reputation, and physical well-being to befriend the wrong people. You get the wrong habits. In my opinion, parents should take an active role in their children's friendships. This doesn't mean only letting them hang out with the smart kids. That's what lots of suburban moms do. I mean they should hang out with morally good kids, or at least not corrupted ones. If they're the same religion, that's even better. Also, sin leaves a permanent mark on a soul. You can't clean your soul on your own. I would say you need a priest or an act of perfect contrition in order to really clean your soul. You can't just stab your soul and fix it. You can't just... Because the the soul and the body are one, so by killing your soul, you kill yourself. Um, But a life of vice leads one to be less likely to do that, which is the right thing, and also less likely to seek virtue. Now, to me, this story will always be a cautionary tale. You really have to be careful what you wish for in this life, and you got to be careful uh, not to let success, wealth, or status tempt you into treating your friends, family, or even yourself like property. Don't become an American psycho. I know it's hard these days, but just please try not to. Going out on a limb here, though, with Mark Zuckerberg's latest announcement about Facebook changing its name to Meta, ushering in a new age of permanent digital existence. Is it safe to say, Evan, that social media will soon become our own version of the picture of Dorian Gray? When online life starts to trade places with real life, our perfect digital selves will never age, never be imperfect, never sin. And that's all anyone will ever see. Between Zoom calls, Twitter, Netflix, and Uber Eats, our ugly aging bodies will have fewer and fewer reasons to actually interact with others, while our real selves on the internet will do all the perfect spotless work for us. Soon we'll be locked in the attic to rot while our digital consciousness parades around the metaverse as a flawless version of us, living out our wildest dreams and bearing no real consequences. God help us. Yeah. Now, I'll add on top of that, uh, it's not just the digital component. If you're a transhumanist, maybe, you know, eternal youth will be a thing. Like it's a, a it's, robot? Yeah, if you just replace everything but your mind with robot, or you keep replacing your organs or whatever with newer models, mm-hmm. then eternal youth may not be something that's just in Dorian Gray. I don't know. You're right. I mean, who knows what the next few hundred years will hold as far as technology goes. 
It's a scary thought. With all that being said, has Dorian Gray become an even more relevant book in the 21st century? Yes. Very short answer. I love it. And I would agree. Uh, and as evidence, just look at how hard the Kardashians try to look attractive online. We are all becoming more image than substance. We are becoming more like a piece of art rather than an actual living, breathing human being. Let's go to the takeaways. Oscar Wilde was a complex human being with some strange ideas and uh, an alternative lifestyle. But he may be the poster child for why you should separate the art and the artist. He would probably agree with that. Do you agree with that, Evan? Because I find it hard to put art and artists together because of cancel culture, which we'll get to here in a minute. I just think that, you know, what a person creates is a, is a created entity. It's separate. And then what they do in their own lives, judge that separately. I only halfway agree. I think you should consider the artists. And oftentimes their life is a big influence on their art. Oh, or it's course. just like their art is an extension of them. Sometimes. Oftentimes. Sometimes. The Picture of Dorian Gray is a classic, and I'm glad I read it in high school. But young people often misinterpret it, like Bob, who we will not mention ever again. No promises. The Gothic style may not be everyone's cup of tea, but it captures the aura of a time none of us will ever fully understand. A time when all the modern technology we take for granted was uprooting the pre-industrial world in the future was uncertain and frightening. Hedonism has always existed and always will and never leads to any long-term good. Now here are some lingering questions. What do you think Oscar Wilde would think of our modern culture? What about cancel culture? He seems like he would be against cancel culture. I think so. He, he himself got, was yeah. canceled. Who knows though? He's such an enigma. Yeah, he may have just supported one day just to be mysterious. What would have made Dorian Gray a more compelling story? Any additions or omissions? I think we could have cut out the whole part about the rugs and all the candles and the furniture and stuff. At least made it like a page. You know? Yeah, one page, that's it. All the stuff he did. So we, we're not left to wonder what he did for 18 years. Yeah. Um, and I think that as far as additions go, maybe offer up an alternative like someone in the story who was a bit of a – like the opposite of Dorian, someone who was – Harder to corrupt. Yeah, not a not a perfect person, whereas Dorian was like the most imperfect hedonist. Not a saint necessarily, but someone to offer us um, a foil for, for Dorian in a way. Because uh, uh, each of the characters kind of is a little bit of a foil. Like Basil. But, yeah, but he's so minor and kind of pathetic in a way mm -hmm. that it's hard for you to really uh, – people. he's kind of forgettable. In a way. So maybe a more memorable foil for Dorian, that would have maybe made it a little better. Now, why does every film version of this novel and or the character of Dorian Gray suck so bad? I mean, come on, guys. The original black and white version may be the only one that is decent. But look, don't get me started on the Dorian Gray character in The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I just, I don't, like I said, don't even get me started. Terrible. Awful. Horrible. Okay, okay I won't get you started. <laughs> Now, you, you lied. I did. Yeah. I, I, well, I couldn't help it. It's We're doing a Dorian Gray episode. I got to be a hypocrite. I got to be uh, mysterious. See? Will, will high school you. Bob ever admit he is wrong about the novel, even though he likely never thinks about you, Dan? He, <laughs> yeah, he probably never does. And um, I think he will never admit it. He It's never even crossed his mind. And it probably never will. He'll always think, man, this Dorian Gray thing is so great. 
I'm just going to keep being a sodomite. <laughs> and his life will go on. Oof. That's all I can say. Anyway, any other closing words? No, we really... We've said all we need to say. I agree. To conclude, the book has no purpose. So, just do what you will. Well, that's all for today's show, folks. Join us again next time for even more ancient wisdom. But no more high school, Bob. (laughs) 